God, you know all the ways in which we need this word today. Be convicted, to be encouraged. Would you help this, your word, as it is preached, be faithful preaching of the word, that we might hear it, and obey it, live it. All this we pray for your glory and our joy. In Christ's name, amen. The great testimony of the world, of the church, to the wisdom of the world is that God is the creator, that he will judge the entire world on the basis of Jesus Christ, and he has assured us of this by raising him from the dead. This is the great wisdom, the church to the world, that God is the creator of all things. He will judge all things on the basis of Jesus Christ and that He has assured us of this by raising Jesus from the dead. My hope for you today is that you would have great confidence to believe that yourself. That would be your hope for salvation. And that you would have great confidence to share that with anyone and everyone. As we go through the book of Acts, we come to Acts chapter 17 where the church and the gospel, as they go out from Jerusalem in the book of Acts, we've been going through the book of Acts chapter by chapter, and as we, as we go through, we're, we're now bumping into this section where the, the gospel has encountered division within the church, persecution from outside of the church, poverty, disunion, persecution, and now the gospel is going to be preached in an engagement with philosophy. Philosophy. I think if we're honest, some Christians are a little afraid of philosophy. And just hearing the word sounds just like the hyenas hearing the word Mufasa. Not so much because we think philosophy will disprove Christianity, but because we just don't know all the ways that Christianity proves worldly philosophy. Christians, I want you to know that in this sermon, I'm going to encourage you to do some reading. I'm not going to encourage you, however, to think that you have to become a quote-unquote philosopher. You could know everything about. You could never know everything about everything, even if you tried. But here's my encouragement to you: you can know that thing that makes everything else make sense. You can know the one truth that makes everything else. Makes sense. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because I see everything else by it. I remember in a seminary class, I was asked to read a few books on the subject of time and theories of time. I read the books and I began to write my paper on theories of time. And I knew enough to know that when I turn this paper in, I'm going to get a C at least, maybe a B, probably not an A. And I knew that I knew the theories well enough that when he asked me this question, this is the answer that I'm supposed to give. And when this is a question, this is an answer to give. But I remember confessing to Colette, 
I'm writing my perspective on theories of time and I don't even understand what I am saying. You will find this in philosophy. You read and you read and you read, you might find things that are just difficult to understand. I'm not here to tell you that the way to be a good Christian evangelist in a philosophical world is become a professional philosopher, per se. It's not what we're going to do today. Christians, though, I think we've had this kind of idea that philosophy is out there and church is in here. There's philosophy of the world and then there's the gospel over here. And they're two different things. They're two different worlds. We have kind of a conscience about philosophy in that way. Where does that come from? I mean, historically, culturally, here's some background why Christians, I think, tend to sometimes feel this way. Philosophy has all these questions. Christianity doesn't really have too many answers. Well, in the 1920s to 1940s, in America at least, it seemed like Christianity was just taking one blow after another. The growing influence of atheistic philosophy led to a significant decline in favor of things like faith and spirituality and public opinion. This entail led to Christians retreating from all kinds of philosophical, worldly education. Professor Owen Strayan writes about it in his book like this, Awakening the Evangelical Mind. He says, some in what we call the conservative movement today, perhaps, had seen young people, particularly the more academically minded young people, walk away from their faith after attending elite institutions. Now, this is not the 90s or 2000s. This is the 1930s, 1940s. They had felt the sting of ridicule, and they wanted to shield their children from it. Education, Strayan says, became among Christians more about safety than about exploration. The idea had become that once people acquire a taste for learning, liberal theology, forsaking the gospel, cannot be far behind. And so, as Ivy League, as the Ivy League turned its back on conservative Christians, conservative Christians would create their own institutions. And next, Dr. Strayan lists dozens, dozens of Bible colleges, institutes, and seminaries that sprang up between Seattle and Baltimore, from New York in the north, Greensboro in the south. It was a fundamental retreat from secular education and philosophies like evolution. The Billy Graham of the day in the 1930s and 40s also named Billy. His name is Billy Sunday. What is it with Baptists and Billies? He explained the mood of the evangelical world at the time in this way. He said, I don't know any more about theology that is on a philosophical level. I don't know any more about theology than a jackrabbit knows about ping pong. But I'm on the way to glory. Well, conservative Christians lost the Scopes Monkey trial in their perspective in 1925. The Prohibition battle was lost in 1933 and that was repealed. And then that December 1933, Billy Sunday died from a heart attack. And it was as if the conservative evangelicalism was literally dying away in America. Swallowed up by academic, atheistic philosophy. So Christians began to form their own schools. We'll go do school by ourselves. And when we did that, I think it created in the American conscience a memory that exists today that maybe we should stay away from philosophy. 
that we should stay away from what we eventually think will ruin Christianity. So we don't engage. We don't have too much to say. We, we, we don't have too many Christians getting PhDs at Yale or Princeton or Harvard anymore. That conscience, that cultural memory, if you will, lingers in the American Christian mind and it tends to show itself in one of two ways, either in fear about philosophy or pride about philosophy. Fear about philosophy or pride about philosophy. Fear says, I don't know anything about philosophy. I don't know any fancy arguments. I just know the Bible and Jesus. I'll never be able to talk to anybody. I could never, I never answer the, the world's questions about philosophy. I've just, I'm not a philosopher. I just, and there's kind of a, a fear. I just know Jesus and the Bible. Well, that's not true. We shouldn't be afraid of that. There's also a pride. It's actually the same sentence. I don't know anything about philosophy. I don't know any fancy arguments. I just know Jesus and the Bible. I don't need to know anything about anything. I know everything there is to know. I don't need to listen to you. I don't need to read any books. Well, neither ought to be our mood. Neither ought to be our tone. The totality of our perspective. We can have confidence with the gospel in the face of philosophy. We can. We don't have to be afraid. We also don't have to be prideful. And I think this is why Acts 17 is there for the church. To tell us about that one time that Paul took the gospel to campus. And he went head to head with philosophy. The philosophers, and of all places, the Areopagus in Greece. This place, the Areopagus, for sure, it's kind of like rolling together the Supreme Court and Harvard into one place. There's a lot of sitting around and philosophizing, a lot of sitting under trees, or in Athens, this is actually a huge dome-like rock, sitting around philosophizing about the meaning of the world and existence and existentialism and those kinds of categories of talking. But it was also judicial in its application. There were cases decided about social justice. It was like a courtroom as well. And their philosophers, I want you to know, their philosophers were not that all different from ours today. The two that are mentioned in your passage were specifically the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans believed that everything came from atoms. That everything that exists, exists in atoms or molecules, particles of matter. So cosmos is really the result, the existence as it is, it's a result of an accident. Not dissimilar to our modern day Big Bang Theory. And so they advocated for pleasure, the way to find pleasure in the world, is to live modestly and limit all of your desires. Which is just like Buddhism. They also shunned divine intervention. There's a God, maybe, and He exists, but He's matter and He's like us. He doesn't intervene in the world, which is deism. And they denied life after death. Stoics, who were more popular at the time, argued that the path to happiness is accepting the moment. Accept the moment. Don't allow yourself to be controlled by pleasures or pain. And this is the same, uh, same uh, philosophy of Disney. Every Disney movie. People should use their minds, Stoics would say. People should use their minds to understand the world just like the Enlightenment. Because your brain and your body and the tree and the table and everything in the world, it's all, it's all some, in some way filled 
with the divine logos, the divine mind, which is pantheism. I just, this is just to show that these Epicureans and these Stoics, they're, they're, they're really quite like our philosophers of today, those outside the church, that is. And I think it goes to show, I think part of the point here is that when you see Paul responding with the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Epicureans and the Stoics, we can kind of see and hear a universal and everlasting generation to generation response of Christianity, of the gospel, to the philosophy of the world. Paul obviously not going to address every philosophy, even of the Stoics and Epicureans, in this little speech, which is no doubt a small summary of his speech that day probably. But it is representative of our engagement with the philosophies in the world. And here's what has happened. Here's how we got to this speech by Paul. Paul has gone from reasoning with anyone who would listen to him in the marketplace. Just another guy in the market, another guy standing there at the coffee shop talking. He's gone from there in this passage to the Areopagus in Athens. And there he's asked to give a formal speech about Christianity. Paul is in this place now where in the room where philosophy in the world happens, on that stage, he is now the formal spokesperson for all of Christianity as an apostle and by the fact that it is still not even in Athens yet. On a global intellectual stage, Paul is introducing Christianity as a whole into the melting pot of the philosophy of the world, which is filled with foreigners and is known for being a place where, as Paul says, uh, Luke said, nothing happens there but learning new things. The first he was talking about Jesus in the coffee shop, then he met some philosophers, and they gave him the stage at Oxford to do a TED Talk on Christianity. Go ahead. Tell us all about Jesus and this stuff about raising from the dead. I think this is sometimes, you might even be nervous feeling this right now. This is sometimes the fear that creeps up in our mind. I've got to talk to anyone in the world, educated, uneducated. But as soon as I start to hear philosophies of the world, I feel like it's me on the world stage representing Christianity against all the philosophy. And what do I say? What do I say? What's my speech? Well, let me ask you, Christian, what would you say? What do you say? Do you know? What do you say to the wisdom of the world? I think if it was us, and we were at Summer Moon down the street, and we ended up talking to someone, and we found out that, uh, and we talked to them about the gospel, and we found out you know, they are a professor at the University of Texas, and there's a forum in two weeks. And you know what? Uh, Chris Watts, I'd really like for you to come give a speech at the University of Texas on Christianity. Ryan, I would really like for you to come do a speech about Christianity at the university and just tell us, I've never heard these things, come tell us what in the world you're talking about. What are we going to say? You might have some things in mind, you might be wondering, how would I keep from throwing up and crying and just going home? I think you can have confidence. I can't cure all your stage fright. I know it's the number one fear in the world. But you can have confidence that you can talk to anyone about the gospel. 
You can tell anyone about Christ. You can talk to anyone about God. I think Paul gives us that. Here's some application first. Let me do some application up front. One, be observant. Two things really quickly. One, be observant when you go out in the world, talk to people. Paul is looking around. One of the ways Paul gets into this conversation in the first place, he looks around at the Areopagus as he gets there and he says, I see that you are all very religious. I see that you have an altar to the unknown God. That's his introduction. I'm here to talk to you about him. Paul is interacting also with their altar. He's interacting with their authors. Let me just encourage you, when you go around into the world, you don't have to be a, a PhD in anything, but do become educated in their altars. Learn their paintings. Read their bumper stickers, the necklaces, their books. These are great conversation starters. You, you see someone somewhere in the world wearing a, a cross or a fish, or if you see someone wearing any kind of design that looks religious, ask them what that means. Ask people about their tattoos. You want to get into a gospel conversation that could be helpful to give you some engagement? Ask people about their tattoos. It's usually not just for fun. They put stuff on their body. It tends to have something to do with someone who passed away or their, th their thoughts about the world that they want everyone to know, that they want to remember. Be observant and engage with what other people are saying, hearing, doing, watching. That means read their poets. Second thing, read. Read the philosophy of the world. Later in the speech, Paul actually quotes one of their poets. Did you catch that when Megan read that? When Megan read that? As one of your poets have said, one of your own poets said it like this. The point, the point that Paul is making there is you guys have this saying that we don't know anything about God, we can't know God, we can't interact with God, and yet you have the saying in your own song that we are his offspring. Well, if we're his offspring and we're living, we can't be material. He uses their own teaching to show their inconsistencies. You keep hearing about this guy named Richard Dawkins. Go read his book, The God Delusion. I think sometimes Christians, I fear that we don't do that kind of engagement. Not because it's too hard to understand intellectually. That's not always our barrier. Sometimes it's because we're lazy. And to understand it would actually take some work and some time. Sometimes we're selfish. We just don't care about what happens. Sometimes we're, we, we don't engage anything in the world because we're prideful. We just don't think it's helpful. We think we already know everything we could possibly ever need to know about anything to be useful. That's so prideful. Sometimes we're confused about what the doctrine that we hold to, the sufficiency of Scripture, means. The sufficiency of Scripture is the doctrine that everything we need, all the revelation from God that we need to be saved and live righteous lives has been given to us in Scripture. Therefore, Scripture is sufficient in counseling and in psychology. Scripture is sufficient in philosophy. Scripture is sufficient in matters of chemistry and uh, science. Scripture is sufficient to see us be saved and walk and live in righteousness. But sufficiency of Scripture does not mean reading other books is evil, or that it's unuseful, or that it's unhelpful practically for us. And that there's not even some true things in those books or other realms in the world. It's not what we mean by sufficiency of Scripture. So just like the church has a conscience shaped by our retreat from philosophy almost a hundred years ago, 
Oftentimes, philosophers and kind of the, the internet philosophers are the ones that we usually meet, those who got their degrees on YouTube. They sometimes see Christians as deluded, as narrow, as, as closed-minded, in some ways we are, and just uneducated fools. And sometimes we are. Sometimes we are. So sometimes we, we just look that way because we don't know anything about the world around us. Let me, just, let me just encourage you to shock someone and read a book that they're reading. Be able to say, you mentioned that book the other day. I saw that book on your shelf. I saw your bumper sticker. I looked that up. I think that's interesting. I have some questions about that. Have you read the books of people around you, what they're reading, their poems, their songs? Look into it a little bit. Listen to some podcast. Mormons are going to your house. Do you know what they believe? Do you know that they're not Christians in their doctrine? What about the zodiac signs? Do you know what those things mean? Do you know how people use those things? They're pretty popular, actually. It's not just the old, news, old, you know, old stuff in the newspaper. What about dinosaurs and the age of the earth and how that affects the, the biblical narrative? I actually am looking for a good recommendation on dinosaurs right now. I don't know which book to read about worldly philosophy on the age of the earth and dinosaurs. Consider that any good missionary is going to go read the religious books of the people he's trying to reach in a foreign land. That just makes sense. It's not just courteous, it's useful. Read their stories, read their books. Paul reasons with them. He dialogues with them, is what that word means. He reasons with them, he dialogues with them, he knows his own doctrine and theirs. Now with that in mind, what do we say? I've already told you I'm not going to encourage you that you have to go get a degree in philosophy to talk to anybody about Jesus in the world. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. That, you know, unless you've read the book, unless you've read God Delusion, you can't talk to atheists about the world and the existence of God. That's not what we're saying. But Paul does find it useful himself. So with that in mind, what is the message that we give? What, what is it that we say? Paul introduces the Areopagus to the close creator, to the judge of the world and the evidence, the assurance that this is how the world really is. So we said at the very beginning, he gives the Areopagus the doctrine that God is the creator, is going to judge the world through Jesus Christ, and that he has assured the world that this is true by the resurrection. Look at chapter 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the Areopagus, standing there among the mount filled of philosophers, standing there on the Oxford stage, standing there at Harvard, giving a speech. This is what he says. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. This is a compliment. This is not a ditch. This is not a dog. This is not, I see that you guys are all religious. This is more likely Paul saying, I noticed that you are religious. Let's talk about that. You would typically begin a speech and ancient rhetoric with a compliment so that you can tear it up later. Verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, the observation of the objects of worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. I noticed, of all the altars, I noticed this one. You have an altar to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. So you have an altar, and it's called the unknown God. And here's Paul's introduction. I am going to tell you all about that God. 
The one you don't know about. Look what he says, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. I've just been looking at all your idols, all your structures, and I'm telling you, it's not where God lives. Verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all mankind, mankind to all mankind life and breath and everything. I want you to see the first great division. God made the world and he made everything in the world. He is not, as the Epicureans and Stoics believed, he is not material. He is not part of existence. He is outside our created existence. He is the origin of our universe and existence. He is the reason. He is the cause. He is not caused. He is not created. God simply exists. Mormons do not believe this, by the way. Don't you know this is the great arrogance that we reject first about God in the world? When Moses is sent back into Egypt and is supposed to go to battle, and go into battle with the, the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh, Moses asks God in the burning bush, who am I supposed to say is sending me in there to do this? God says, when you go in there, you tell them that I am has sent you. I am uncreated. I am. I exist. When Jesus quotes that in John chapter 8, it is a statement of eternal existence to say, I am. When we reject God, we simply say of ourselves, when we reject that we have come from a created or from a creating God, our proclamation is, I just exist. How did I get here? How did we get here? How did the world get here? It is. I just am. My meaning and my being and my value which determine my life and my worth and my choices. It just is. And Paul is saying you cannot say that about God. You cannot say that about the Creator. God <clears throat> is the Creator and everything else is created and here is the hinge and this that includes you. Areopagans. It includes you philosophers. You were created. Well, the average modern philosopher really doesn't mind admitting that there is a God who made the world. Increasingly, the average modern philosopher, the people that we talk to, you'll find they're not really too ashamed or too close-minded to admit that there's a God who made the world. What tends to bother humans the most in the West today is that it means that God is Lord. It's not the idea of there being a God that bothers us. It's the idea that God... The idea of God means God is close. And He's Lord. If there's a Creator, then I go from self-existent and, and free from all sense of obligation. Now to just being clay in someone's hands, now I have to recognize that I've got to submit to someone else's power and their, do I have to submit to their authority? And I can't just say that there's a God. I don't want to say that there's a God because then if I admit that there's a God, then I, I have to owe Him my existence. I have to, to owe Him my life. I mean, Paul, it's Paul's point that from this God comes my life and my breath 
And look at that verse. He says, and everything, everything comes from God. I have to admit that everything I am, everything I have, even my own breath, my existence comes from God. And this God is way beyond the idea of Epicurean and Stoic Greek little G gods that exist within creation and, and battle and fight and try to overpower one another and get married and divorced and have you know baby gods. And this God is so far beyond that. The God that you don't know is the only God who created the world. So what do people in our modern times do when they want to believe that there is a God, but they don't want Him to be Lord? Well, it's not a very different one that they were doing in the Areopagus. They become, a general term, they become agnostic. We're doing something similar to Athens when we do this. It's building a philosophical altar to a God worshiping Him as one who made everything, but then labeling that altar unknown God. Unknowable God is what agnosticism believes. Oh, there's a God out there. And I want to give Him a nod and you know, put Him a little statue for Him, but I just want everyone to know you can't know Him. Agnosticism is the altar to the unknowable God. We can... Know that there is a God. We just can't say for certain that anyone has certainty about knowing Him. So here's what agnostics are really trying to do. They're trying to have both. I get to acknowledge that God is there and He's a creator, but still live like He does not exist. I acknowledge God, but I don't owe Him anything. Because who really knows what He's like? Who knows? Well, who knows becomes their doctrine that no one knows. And if no one knows truly and fully what God is like, then we call that plurality. Everyone's views are equally valid. Where we live today. That's the West. And do you see this? I, I say this all the time. Agnostics feel, and I'm not trying to, to downplay or, or be, be mean-spirited or say something mean about agnostics, but when I have talked to those over the years claim to be agnostics, you get the sense that they feel like they are giving some, you know, God some kind of adulation for existing. I acknowledge that. All right, all right. I'm, I, I will say that there is a God there. I'll, I'll give you that. I'll say that there's a God and He's, and he's made everything. And it's almost like there's, a, there, there's a, a worshiping God by humbly acknowledging His existence, but refusing to consider you can actually know Him and be bound to Him in any way. So agnostics do exactly what they did in Athens. They build an altar to God. Their only form of worship is calling Him an unknown God. That's agnostic worship. Oh God, He's too great. He's, he's too God to be known. That's kind of a pat on the back to God, isn't it? So I'm praising God more than you by calling Him unknown. You want to limit God with your small religion that comes from a book that excludes everyone else, and you want to put God in that little box, you are the one that was not worshiping Him truly. I'm really the one who has an altar built for Him, leaving Him in the category of unknown. I really worship Him. We get to worship the existence of God while living a self-existent life. A life that has a self-existent morality. In this way, plurality is the servant of autonomy. 
plurality. The idea that all views are the same. All ideas about God are the same. Plurality is simply the servant to personal autonomy. Can't know anything about God, so I can live my life as I see it wise. I'm saying when you say there's no way to know that we can know God, you are serving the idea that you are not subject to God, either philosophically speaking or personally. So what Paul says next is even more crucial. There's this creator out there, and you are saying that he's unknown, but God, excuse me, Paul is going to say that God is close. Right behind you. Don't look back, that's not what I meant. You see, when God, what we call God unknowable, and we acknowledge he's there, but we try to send him a thousand miles away, or even just hide behind the bushes if that will do, but Paul is saying the Creator is actually very, very, very close. And I think that's often what scares agnostics. Not that He is there, but that He might be close and care and do something and engage and it matters what I do. If the lights get turned on, you'll realize God was in the room all along. Well, watch what Paul says. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 through 30. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He's actually not far from each one of us. He's right there. For in Him we live and we move and we have our being. Could be a quote of one of theirs. Authors, I think, maybe Scripture. As even some of your own poets have said, you, you are saying it yourselves, we are indeed His offspring. And if we are His offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. You didn't come up with this God. Not if He's a living God, not if He's a creating God. That's not true. Verse 30, the times of ignorance... God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. You think you are blessing God by referring to Him as unknown. And I'm saying, Paul's saying, I'm saying God has ordered the world <clears throat> so that you might find Him. It's the opposite. You, you think God is a thousand miles away, doesn't care about the earth, isn't doing anything in the earth. You're not responsible for Him. And I'm telling you, God has actually ordered the world. He's put you where He has put you. In Judaism, outside Judaism, in Africa, and America. He's put you wherever He's put you. He's put humankind in His order and His place in order that you might find Him. I think when we read this verse, we often tend to think of this groping for God concept that you would search for Him and find Him as negative. Sometimes we, we read it like we're, we're dark and, and in a dark room and we're blindfolded just trying to find God and God's playing like this cosmic you know, game of hide and seek and He's just really good at finding, you know, not being found and so we can't really, can't really know Him. That's not what Paul's getting at when he says this. He's saying the exact opposite with his point. That God has made the world so that you can find Him. He's made the world and ordered it so that He's close, that He's near you, so that He can be found. God's not playing cosmic hide-and-seek. These are the most haunting words to a pluralistic world view. Verse 27, He is actually not far from each one of us. Every single one of us. 
Here Paul is showing the inconsistency of Athenian worship because it's one of the songs of Zeus that says we are God's offspring. Paul says, yeah, I know your stuff, I've, I've heard your stuff, and you say unknown, but when you talk about Zeus, it sure seems like you know him. And you know him because you think you are his offspring. Paul goes exactly where agnostics are trying to avoid. If this is true, that this is God's world, and He made the world, and He made you in life, and gave you life and breath and everything in it, then you, last word in verse 30, must repent. You must repent. You can't keep your life to yourself. Your self-existence is gone. This is a God existence. And you owe Him your life. As soon as you acknowledge God can be known, in order to be intellectually and philosophically consistent you have to recognize you owe Him, this person, God, you owe Him your knowing Him. You owe Him knowing Him. You must tear down the altar that you built, that you wrote unknown under, and write Creator of everything. Created my life. My breath has created everything. And you have to repent. And brings up two large questions for us. How does one repent? What does that mean to repent from plurality, from Epicureanism, from Stoicism, from agnosticism? How do I repent? Second question, how can I be sure? So how do I do repent? What, is it, what do I turn to besides just you know, the theology that there is a God? How do I repent and how can I be sure? I'll ask two questions for the day. How do I repent? You acknowledge God deals with the world through Jesus Christ. Acknowledge that in God's plan for existence that Jesus is at the middle and everything. Look what he says. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 to 31. Repenting from agnosticism and repenting from not knowing God doesn't just land you in kind of a, oh, there is a God, but lands you in, in the person of Jesus Christ. Acts 17, 30, 31. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now, that's over. Now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Read that sentence again. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. No more Athenians. No more unknown God talk. Now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because God has fixed a day on which He, God, the Creator God, is going to judge the world in hall of righteousness. He's going to judge the whole world. That means He's going to make a judgment about the whole world. Pass His judgment by a man whom he has appointed. The coming of Jesus Christ signifies in part no more saying that God is a Jewish God, that I'm ignorant. No more plurality that everything that exists is fine. No, he commands everyone everywhere to repent and acknowledge him and that he is doing everything that he's doing. He's going to judge the whole world, beginning to end, heaven and earth, 
through the person of Jesus Christ. He will judge the world in righteousness, righteously, by a man whom he has appointed, referring to Jesus Christ. Now remember, earlier we said the Areopagus was like Harvard and the Supreme Court all in one. Well, Paul said that God created the world, and we owe him our life and our breath, and everything. That, that was, as it were, in, in, in a little summary, message to the, the Harvard philosophers. You want to talk about life and existence and the meaning and where we come from. Well, that was a message to the Harvard philosophers. When he tells the Areopagus that God is going to judge the world through Christ, he tells the Supreme Court side of Athens, this big rock in Athens is not the final court. You don't make the decisions. You don't make the final judgments in the world. God holds court in heaven. Not little g-gods, not you, senators in Athens. God. It's not that God is judgy in His personality. The point is that God is going to judge the whole world, His entire relationship with the world, His means for deciding every philosophical question, every moral question, every question about you and your life is going to happen through Jesus Christ. It's not just about God, it's about Jesus. Repenting from not knowing God doesn't just land you at this, there is a God, it lands you at Jesus being how God is going to judge the whole world. That Jesus is God's relationship to the world in one sense, in the middle of His plan. The Creator is so close. So close. You think He's unknown? He's not just known. He's one of us. He became a man, is what I mean. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things that were made were made through Him. Without Him, not anything was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And here's what it means for John to say that Jesus was and is God. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, Jesus, He Jesus has made God known. Jesus makes God known. Close to humanity. This is Paul's great speech in the halls of Harvard and the seats of Oxford. The times of worshiping God is unknown, are over. Tear down that altar, repent. He's not far. You can know Him. And God rules the entire world through Jesus Christ. Christ, God Himself in the flesh, immaculately conceived in Mary. Well, as soon as we do this, we realize if I'm going to repent, come to Christ, I'm going to be judged. And here's the glory of the Gospel. When I find myself to the center of the purpose and the meaning that God has created the whole world, and He's going to judge the whole world by Christ in righteousness. The one man who is holy and righteous like Him. I'm going to come to Christ and I'm going to find I am a sinner. I'm not good. 
but I am also going to find at the center of the Creator's plan is forgiveness. That what we can know about God is forgiveness. You see, we don't want to acknowledge that God is in the room because if we know Him, we are responsible. Humanity will have to admit that we are not good, so we want God away so that I can live my self-existent lifestyle. I can keep living in sin. No, who cares what God says? God's holiness, when it shines on us in Christ, makes our souls squint and hide. We want to be away. We want God to be unknown. Not just that we're philosophically confused. We don't want to know Him. Listen, here is what Jesus means. If Jesus is the center of all that God is doing in His plans and purposes on the earth in the whole entire universe, then there is forgiveness when you repent, come to the Creator, and see His work in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7-10 through 10 says, In Him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, referencing Him dying on the cross. We have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace which He lavished upon us. And all wisdom, all of His insight which are making known to us the mystery of His will. He told us what He's doing according to His purpose, the purpose that He set forth in Christ by whom He's going to judge the whole world. And that is His plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. You do not have to worship an unknown God. You can worship a God who you know forgives you. That's the plan. That's the whole fullness of time in heaven and earth. Old, now, future. To have Christ crucified for the forgiveness of your sins. That's how you can know that there is a Creator God and actually want to know Him. Come to Him. That's how you repent. You acknowledge Jesus as the only way to know God. Confess your sin, having been forgiven. Love God with your life, with your breath, and with your everything. Jews might say, well, we have the Scriptures. We know the Scripture. Well, that was the whole point of the sermon last week. The Scriptures, they're all about Christ too. We can know God in Christ. Listen to how it says for both Jews and Gentiles in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. He's talked to us, spoken to us by Christ, in whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He created the world through Christ. He is the radiance. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. It's like God is the sun, Jesus is the sunbeam. He's, he's the radiance of Him. The exact imprint of God's nature. You want to know what God is like? Know what Jesus is like. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Jesus with one command could snap His fingers. You think Thanos is impressive. He holds the world by the word of His power. Creator is God. And the way that God is going to work in the world to judge all humanity is Jesus Christ. And in plan in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. That's how you can know God and want to know Him. Knowing that forgiveness is there for you when you come to Him. Well, how can you be sure? That's how you repent. You come back to God and you look to Christ and you confess your sin and you recognize God as Creator and Jesus as His Savior Son. How can we be sure? How can we go from no one can know to we can be sure? God has given us assurance by raising Jesus from the dead. 
to follow Paul's speech. There's a creator who created everything. He judges the world. As the Bible teaches, there's forgiveness found in Christ. How can I know? Look at Acts 17.31. He's fixed today on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Listen to this. God gives assurance to the world that we can know him and find forgiveness in his judgment because Jesus was raised from the dead. That's how we can know. That is our assurance. Here's Paul. Dragged from having coffee in the marketplace and just talking to whoever shows up this day. Dragged up onto the stage at the Areopagus. And his final conclusion, the last sentence in his speech, is you can be sure that God is the creator and he judges the whole world through that one man. And that that is the court of judgment, not this place. You want to know how you can be sure? Jesus raised from the dead. That's his last argument. He went and sat down. Jesus raised from the dead. You can be sure because Jesus rose from the dead. Listen, I think we get this so backwards when we talk to other people about Jesus. We tend to think of the resurrection as that thing which needs evidence if we're going to believe it. But Paul is staring philosophy in the face and he tells it, Jesus raising from the dead is God's assurance to you. God is the one who gives evidence. God is the one who proves that He is the Creator. That Jesus is the one by whom He's going to judge the world. God is the one who proved Himself. He raised Jesus from the dead. God is not sitting around going, I wish, oh, oh, I just wish more Christians would be better philosophers. We could maybe do something in the world. No. He just says, you go, and you tell them, Jesus rose from the dead. That's what I've got for you. Paul is probably one of the most cunning, sharp, witty, educated men in the New Testament. In his big pitch, Jesus rose from the dead. That's his argument. When people reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they reject the most obvious, the most awesome, and the most riveting proof that can be known about Christ, that He's raised from the dead. That means that God is the creator and judge of the world, and that He has judged the world in sin through His resurrection. Christians, you will never find more assurance from God that we can make Him known and be forgiven in Christ than Jesus Raising from the dead. No class, no book, no philosophy can compare to God's own witness that Jesus raised from the dead. Now let me tell you, I've already encouraged you to go read all the books. already did that. You can read them. You should read them. And I've read them. And I'm reading them. It's going to be the same when you get to the end. It's Jesus raising from the dead being God's witness. And remember in Luke chapter 16... There's that conversation between Abraham and Lazarus who has died, and it's Jesus who's talking about himself through the voice of Abraham in the passage saying, if you don't believe Moses in the Scriptures, you're not going to believe a man raised from the dead. If you're not going to believe a man raised from the dead, there's nothing to convince you. And the Athenians here at Arabiopagus, they were no closer to witnessing Jesus' actual resurrection than me or you. 
This is God's testimony that He is the Creator, that He's going to judge the world and our whole lives in eternity by the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and raised from the dead. And here's, here's two encouragements, really quick. Probably not that quick, but two encouragements. One, it means you can be so close to God, you can give Him a hug. You can be in fellowship with Him. You can be with Him, close. Like close, close. Not even just in the same room judging you and you're okay with it, but close to Him like... There's a story that continues to go on. It actually just got denied in the Supreme Court as an appeal recently. I think it was in, in, it was in Texas. I think it was in Dallas. A girl named Amber Geiger, a police officer. thought she was going into her own room one night, her own apartment. She goes actually into someone else's apartment and she, she shoots her testimony. She accidentally shot uh, a young man named Botham Jean and he died. She was prosecuted. Uh, she was convicted. And at the sentencing hearing, Botham's brother, I remember his name, Brant, Brant John, comes to give testimony about and to Amber at the case. I encourage you to go look this up and, and read it and listen to the video. In short, Botham, testifying on his dead brother's behalf to the woman who shot him, he speaks to her and he says, I don't wish you anything bad. I hope that you go to God with all the guilt that you have and all the things that you've done in the past. And I, and I, and if you are truly sorry, I know that God will forgive you. I know that God will forgive you. And I don't think anyone can say, I love you just like anyone else. I'm not going to say that I hope you rot and die like my brother did. I'm not going to say that. I personally want the best for you. I wasn't going to say this in front of my family or anyone else, but I want you to hear it. I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. The best would be to give your life to Christ, he says. I'm not going to say anything else. That's what my brother would want to do. I love you. I don't wish anything bad on you. And the brother looks over to the judge and says, can I give her a hug, please? Please? And there's like a, a crashing embrace in the middle of the courtroom when Brant Jean John hugs Amber Geiger, the woman who killed his own brother. Well, that's the kind of closeness that forgiveness gets us with God. In a cosmic, spiritual way. Not just judicial freedom from punishment of sin. But you go from unknown, the unknown God, to embracing and being embraced by God. Can this happen? Can philosophers actually become Christian? Michael Yang was a, had a bachelor in biological engineering from John Hopkins, medical degree from Harvard. <coughs> he tells his own story about becoming a Christian in a book called Finding God at Harvard, a story of many people becoming Christians or growing in their faith at Harvard, despite Harvard's ironic, absolutely ironic, rejection of Christianity in the modern century. Century. Michael Yang says, I grew up an atheist while I was in school. I looked at many of the arguments for the existence of God and I came to the conclusion there was no God. Furthermore, my scientific training in high school and college had nurtured me in mechanistic view of the universe that Laplace said had no need for the hypothesis of God. I did not believe in a God, let alone creator who was intimately involved in the affairs of man. And I had already concluded that miracles did not happen. 
Besides, among the Christians I knew, it seemed that no one truly believed in a God who worked miracles today anyway. During my first semester at Harvard Medical School, at the suggestion of a Christian friend and acquaintance, I began to examine the Bible and to investigate the Christian faith. It was a reasonable request. I had never read the Bible, but only what others had to say about it. At the very least, I thought after reading the book, I would be able to tell Christians more accurately why they were wrong. Unfortunately, or rather fortunately for me, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. As I examined the Bible in detail for the very first time, my mind began to change. I saw the distortions and the misquotations of those who had argued against the Christian faith, and I saw the philosophical and historical evidences for Christianity. And in the Scriptures, I also found a God who worked miracles. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the Son of God, Yang says. He claimed to be God incarnate who had power to forgive sins and he said that he had come to pay the ultimate penalty for sin by suffering death in our place. He offered eternal life to everyone who believed in him because he rose victoriously from the dead. This Jesus not only preached the good news of eternal life, but he also did some startling things. He healed the sick. He promised abundant life. Now and power to those who trusted him. He said that his followers would participate in the transform, transformation of human lives as they themselves had been transformed. These claims posed by Christianity echoed in some of my thoughts. And in turning my life over to Christ, I experienced what Christians call the miracle of new birth. If Michael Yang can become a Christian, Anybody can become a Christian if they hear God is the creator. He judges the entire world in eternity through the person of Jesus Christ. And he has assured us that Jesus is the Son of God by whom he will judge the world by raising him from the dead. God, thank you so much for your word and its encouragement, its conviction. We ask that you would help us live in joy, obedience, fearlessness, and humility as we engage the views and the thoughts of the world. Help our own faith be built up Help us by your spirit and your word be equipped to talk to whoever we might meet, however small the stage might be, about Christ, the creator, redeemer. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.